the transition that has taken place in the Colorado River Basin is astounding. The Colorado River Basin is in its 23rd year of a historic drought. Let's be clear up front, the prolonged drought is one of the most significant challenges facing our communities and our country. Both Lake Powell and Lake Mead are at historically low levels. We're going to have to make some hard choices. We really have to think big because we're going to have to create a new regulatory framework. This is the unprecedented challenge that we face. And without action, we cannot protect the system and the millions of Americans who rely on this critical resource. This is a full-on five-alarm fire going on right now. And the worst is yet to come. After decades of repeated warnings, the Colorado River has reached a tipping point. Now, the seven western states that make up the Colorado River Basin need to cut about a quarter of the water that they use from it, and quickly. The water supply for millions of people in the West, where a big part of the country's food stock comes from, is at stake. It's a doomsday scenario talked and written about for decades, and it's now here. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, essential news from the LA Times. It's Friday, January 6th, 2023. Today, in the first of a six-part series on the Colorado River, how our greed has pushed this vital resource to a breaking point and how life as we know it in the American West is about to drastically change. Taking us on this journey down the Colorado River is my LA Times colleague and resident water reporter, Ian James. Ian, welcome to the Times. Thanks, Gustavo. So we've been hearing alarming things for decades about the shrinking water supply in the American West, but especially the water that comes from the Colorado River. What's the latest? That's right. It's a real crisis right now. The situation on the river has continued to get worse and worse. Lake Powell and Lake Mead, which are the country's two largest reservoirs, are at their lowest levels since they were filled. Lake Mead is currently less than a quarter full. And they continue to go down. Federal officials are projecting historically low water levels in the western U.S. over the coming months. The water level has gotten so low that dead bodies that were thrown into Lake Mead years ago have been resurfacing. A decomposed body in a barrel was spotted by boaters. The man had been shot. His shoes put the killing between the mid-1970s and early 1980s. Meanwhile, in Arizona, farmers have been cutting back the amount of water they're able to use. Federal officials plan to tell several western states how much more they'll have to cut back in water usage. And there are plans in Southern California to start rationing water by April of this year. This drought doesn't end. So it's just a situation that continues to get worse. The federal government has been trying to step in and tell the seven states that get water from the river that they're going to need to cut back very quickly. Jeez. 
how did we get to this point? Like, what's driving this crisis? One is just chronic overuse of the water. The reservoirs on the river can hold multiple years of water. They're actually very large reservoirs, but they've been drawn down over the past two decades. And going back a century, the agreements that divided up the river handed out way more water than was available. And now the hotter, drier climate is adding to that disconnect between what's available and what's being promised, what's being given out. And so it's two big things, chronic overuse of the water, and the other is the effects of climate change. It boils down to simple math. It's taking out more than what's going in. Addition, subtraction. Exactly. And so what that means is there will need to be major changes in how this region uses the river. I've been hearing about problems with the Colorado River for basically my entire life. I'm sure you have too. So what motivated you to really start paying attention to it? Yeah, I've been reporting on the problems of the Colorado River for years, and it's just in the past year, it's gotten so much more serious. And I had the idea to travel to different places along the river and look really deeply at why this matters, how it's affecting people now and what may be coming as this serious shortage really spreads out across the landscape and affects how we live. So where did you go and who did you meet? We traveled all over the place. We visited the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. You know, everyone knows that we're dry. We talked with farmers and ranchers there. This is where it starts. We went to Lake Powell in Utah. It's pretty gnarly. And went upriver with John Weisheit, who is an environmental activist and a river guide. I mean, I don't know if I'm willing to uh, flip a boat for this. We went to the Imperial Valley and talked with farmers. What are we seeing here? So we're germinating uh, some basil, so our fall basil. We went to Las Vegas and talked with people who are seeing grass removed. You know, we are called water waste investigators, so that's pretty much exactly the job. We went to the Fort Mojave Indian Reservation and talked with leaders of the tribe about how they view the river. It's who we are. Never forget that, never sever from it. And we also went to Mexico, where we spoke with environmental activists and farmers and people who rely on fishing. These are people who are seeing up close how rapidly this river has changed, but also how these problems have been building for a really long time. And they're worried about how this river is drying up and they're looking for what may be solutions. Yeah, it makes sense that the people that you interviewed would be really concerned about the crises because they're working day to day on that particular issue. But how does the drying of the Colorado River affect everyone else who might not live close to the river or even see it very often? Like, what's the scale of how we use the Colorado River? It's a major water source all the way from Denver to San Diego. Seven Western states and all depend on it. That includes Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Nevada, Arizona, and California. Agriculture uses the biggest share by far, about 80% of the flow of the river. And the river also supplies big cities like Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles. Altogether, it's about 40 million people who get water from the Colorado River. 
And it also is used to produce all sorts of crops, including 90% of the country's winter vegetables. So basically the modern American West wouldn't exist without the river, in other words. Exactly. So how close are we to jeopardizing the way that people live out here? I'd say the river is really at a critical point, a tipping point. And everyone who's looking closely at it is talking about how we need to adapt to a smaller river and it needs to happen very quickly. Some people I talk to describe it as the river is dying. Coming up after the break, what people are doing to solve this crisis and what's getting in the way. Ian, you mentioned that we're reaching a tipping point for the Colorado River, this huge life source for the West. How long have people been messing with it? This has been a long time coming. I mean, really, the history of the river has been shaped by monumental efforts by people to control and exploit its waters. In 1922, the seven states got together in New Mexico and signed this agreement to divide the water of the Colorado River. There were seven different state representatives. There was a federal representative who was Herbert Hoover, actually, at the time. And through the course of a year, they came up with a way to allocate the waters of the Colorado River. And it took them multiple meetings in many different places. I called up Brad Udall, who's a climate scientist at Colorado State University, and he explained some of the history. The idea that seven states could agree on water use through an interstate compact was the idea of uh, Delph Carpenter, the Colorado River representative to the compact process. The 1922 Colorado River Compact set aside 7.5 million acre feet for the upper basin and 7.5 million acre feet for the lower basin. At first glance, that's what it did. It carved up the shares of the water into an upper basin and a lower basin. It's something of an artificial construct, but this dividing line is at Lee's Ferry in Arizona, which is located downstream of Glen Canyon Dam and upstream of the Grand Canyon. The states in the upper basin include Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. And the lower basin states include Arizona, Nevada, and California. Each state had an amount of water allotted, and there have been some disagreements since then that have been sorted out in court, such as the Arizona versus California case in the 1960s. But that is the agreement that, along with various other agreements, governs how much each state can take from the river. It also carved out an allocation for Mexico, but not numerically. It just said, here's where that water will come from if a treaty with Mexico occurs. When the states signed the Colorado River Compact in 1922, Mexico wasn't involved. Mexico secured its water allotment in 1944 under a separate treaty agreement with the U.S. government. And that has been in place ever since. Mexico gets 1.5 million acre feet. 
And so we're now in the 100th anniversary of the compact. It is a document that's very short. It fits on about four pages. And also, tribes weren't part of that discussion at all. It's a, obviously a super important document, but is showing its age right now. Even when the compact was signed, there were some people who warned that there wouldn't be enough water for all the demands placed upon it. And those warnings grew louder as the years went on, but especially in the last two decades, as the river has shrunk dramatically during this mega drought. But now it's not just a problem of the states using too much water, right? Or just getting too much water out of it. You mentioned earlier climate change. That's right. I mean, the average temperatures across the upper part of the watershed have risen a lot. And if you look back to 1970, the average temperature has risen about three degrees. I like to say, and I've said for years, climate change is water change. If you add heat to the earth like we're doing in spades right now, you're going to fundamentally change the water cycle. And we have known this for literally decades. So starting around 2000, Lake Mead was nearly full and then major drought hit and it hasn't let up since. The scientists who look closely at it say a big driver of this dryness has been the higher temperatures from climate change. You get a whole litany of problems that come via the water cycle when you heat the planet. Brad Udall and other climate scientists talk about this as aridification, a progressive drying of the West. What we've seen since the year 2000 is now a 20% decline in flow. Basically, as fossil fuels are burned and as the climate heats up, that's supercharging the droughts. And so the drought that we're now in the past 23 years has been one of the driest periods in centuries. And the science shows that it has become significantly worse because of all the heating. You know, the old saying, nature bats last, is about to come true here if we don't act to cut these demands down to exactly what nature is supplying. And so basically that's made the crisis on the river that much worse, that we're overusing a resource that is diminishing. So what's the biggest concern right now then with the Colorado River? Well, if things go as they are and if water use doesn't get reduced, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the two major reservoirs that are filled by the river, may be in trouble. The water levels could keep going down to levels that are really basically the bottom of the bucket. And if that happens, what happens? Potentially Deadpool. Deadpool, the Marvel character, the funny one? Yeah, exactly, but less fun to watch. Lake Powell and Lake Mead, they're now almost three-fourths empty. And if water levels keep going down, there is a risk of eventually reaching Deadpool. So where does that term even come from? I don't know exactly where it came from, but I think the people who manage the dams know that this is something that they definitely want to avoid. Because getting to that point would mean no water passing through the dams anymore downstream. And it would mean that we couldn't get any water out of the reservoirs whatsoever for California Arizona and Mexico. It basically means running out of water. And in fact, the latest federal projections show that there is a risk that Lake Mead could reach Deadpool as soon as 2025. Wow, that all sounds really bad. What's being done then to avoid reaching this so-called Deadpool? 
Well, the federal government is trying to increase the pressure on the seven states to scale back water use in a big way. And they've told the states to come up with plans to reduce water use by two to four million acre feet, which turns out to be about 15 to 30 percent of the water that's used. So it's a huge reduction. And the federal government has been trying to increase the pressure on the states for them to act. So how's it going right now? Are the states making any progress in making these cuts? There actually have been some cuts made already under previous agreements. And in part of Arizona, farmers are already dealing with losing their water supply from the river. The reductions in Arizona are set to get even bigger this year, but still the falling reservoir levels mean that bigger cuts are needed throughout the region. And at the same time, growth is continuing to happen in areas that depend heavily on water from the Colorado River. Yeah, every time I pass through Phoenix and the suburbs around it, they seem to be getting more and more houses. There's this Holiday Inn Express that I stay in, I think a Buckeye which is a city right on the outskirts of Phoenix on the west part. And I remember that when I used to look out, it was all basically desert and the 10. Last time I was there, I started seeing them getting ready to make all of that into houses. Exactly. It's one of the fastest growing parts of the country. And that growth has continued over the past couple of decades. Phoenix and the surrounding suburbs get a large share of their water from the Colorado River. But they have to make big cuts And there are people who are asking, at what point should this start to affect all the growth that's happening? Hi. Hello, what what is this? And one of the people I talked with about this is Kathy Ferris, who's a former director of Arizona's Department of Water Resources. What are we looking at here? We're, We're looking at the CAP Canal, the Central Arizona Project Canal. And this is the canal that brings water all the way from the Colorado River to Central Arizona. And And we met at one of these suburbs that's growing really rapidly, Buckeye. This is maybe meant to look like Mexico City. I don't know. (laughs) La Condesa. Buckeye has plans to triple in population by 2030. But Kathy is concerned that in this part of the state, there doesn't seem to be enough water for all the growth that's planned. It's kind of like a movie set. It's more of a neighborhood than a lot of Arizona communities. It's like houses built around common areas. I used to live in Phoenix, so it's very familiar to me. I wanted to go back to see basically these areas that have been growing really rapidly and is the water shortage starting to affect growth at all. And what we saw was lots of construction happening, new developments going in, golf courses, flowing fountains, It doesn't feel like Arizona. The shade is the really nice part of this. Basically, it doesn't seem like the shortage on the Colorado River is having a big effect yet in terms of holding back the growth in the desert. Okay, so all this development's happening despite the Colorado River shrinking. So where is Arizona planning to get its water from? Arizona is looking to pump more groundwater, and that really worries Kathy. We've been kind of warning about this groundwater thing now for a few decades, too. And it doesn't feel like people are paying attention. A lot of growth is happening under this accounting system where growth can happen in areas that depend on groundwater as long as water is being replenished from the Colorado River elsewhere, from the CAP Canal, the Central Arizona Project Canal. The problem is there's less water flowing in now, but those demands 
to continue growing and pumping groundwater in these areas on the periphery of the Phoenix area, those pressures are not going away. And so she's concerned that it won't be sustainable in the long run to rely more and more on groundwater in the desert. It's just easier to keep going like we've been going. But if we do that and we haven't planned for it, then the shortages will be abrupt and they will be disastrous. They will affect human life and industry and businesses. I think we can't continue to allow everyone to have what they want. More after the break. Ian, you mentioned earlier about some of the proposals that the government, federal government, is giving the states in terms of using Colorado River water. So where are they right now in terms of negotiation? In other words, are the states going to say, yeah, we're going to go with what you have to say? I don't think anyone knows right now. The negotiations among the states have been tense and acrimonious. There's been some finger pointing. Some states have said that California needs to do more. At the same time, there are also tribes that are asking to be more involved in the process of talking about how the water is used. It looks difficult at this point. It looks like what might happen is the states would agree to reduce water use by some amount, and the federal government also would take other actions to rein in water use and reduce the amount of water that's being released from the reservoirs. Altogether, that adds up to a picture of everyone being forced to use quite a bit less. And the question that hasn't really been worked out yet is where are those cuts going to fall the hardest and how is it going to work? Yeah, and no one wants their water cut, especially since their entire existence. They haven't had to do this much, especially not at the levels that the federal government wants. But what happens if all these states, if these tribes, everyone involved in the Colorado River, if they don't get their act together and act quick? Yeah, it's a terrifying scenario. I asked Brad Udall, the climate scientist, and he made the point that everything is connected. If one thing goes wrong here, there's all these other ripple effects. You know, sometimes I think we just get so insulated and we kind of have a failure of imagination on how bad things could get, right? Hitting Deadpool at Lake Mead would be catastrophic. You run the risk of no refilling of Lake Mead. That means, in theory, a city of two million people, Las Vegas, has 90% of their water at, at risk. And then obviously no water out of Hoover Dam, so no water into central Arizona, no water into the LA Basin. It would be a disaster unlike anything we've ever seen in the Southwest. No water for Mexico. I mean, you could quickly end up in a really ugly place and we need not to have a failure of imagination on how bad it could get. Entire farming areas in California, like the Imperial Valley, the Palo Verde Valley, would dry up because the Colorado River is their only source of water. I'm always amazed the number of people that somehow think the world can go to hell and yet they can still go down to Safeway and get their groceries. They don't make the connection that we're all interconnected. There is concern that if the cuts aren't made and quickly, that Lake Mead could continue to decline and ultimately crash. Why we would ever blunder into that is beyond me. 
Yeah, no, this is all terrifying. But Ian, you talked to the experts. You spoke about what the government's doing. Did you talk to regular people who know what's going on, who might be concerned? While I was working on this story, I traveled to the Green River in Utah to meet a group of students from Utah State University. They were camping by the Green River as part of their class on the Colorado River. Yeah, pass around. Uh, we got cookies here. It was interesting to hear their perspectives as well as their professor, Jack Schmidt, in talking about how to deal with this problem of too much water being taken out and too little going in. This trip is about how many different views there are of the same place. That it's just this deficit that is serious, is not going away. We're depressed because nothing we're going to look at tomorrow is water. They were expressing some frustration that even though people have known these problems were building for years, that the problems haven't been solved. I feel like we like to divide up all of the issues into their own little categories, where the real issue is climate change causing drought and the inability of our legal system to adapt to this non-stationary and uncertain climate that we've created. Um, One of the students I talked with, Naomi Orchard, she's a student at Utah State. Um, I'm a second-generation river guide on the Colorado River, and I'm a current undergrad at USU studying management and restoration of aquatic ecosystems. She said she often hears about how the river is a mechanism of delivering water. In this class, we kind of get caught up sometimes talking about where it's going and who's getting it and what it's being used for. And I think But as a river guide, she knows it's much more than that, that it is this vibrant ecosystem. And there's a lot of personal and emotional ties to the river. I grew up running rivers. My first trip, my mom was pregnant. My parents potty trained my sister and I on the river. <laughs> it's changed me as a person fundamentally. It's taught me how to be an authentic version of myself. And taking people down the river lets me share that with other people. And I think it gives people a perspective of our role on the planet and where we stand and how small we really are. It seemed like one of the main points is that beyond being a water source, the river deserves to continue flowing. The thing that I like to try to remember when we're talking about these big issues of water management and drought is that we're talking about the river as like this channel, but to me it's its own entity with its own personality and its own beauty and its own purpose in and itself as just a river being a river. And also I would think just getting people to understand the water that you use, it comes from somewhere and that somewhere is in danger. That's right. Part of the problem is that for many of us, we turn on the tap, the water comes out, and we don't necessarily think about where it comes from. We're so disconnected from how we get our water and our food that it's really easy to forget. We live in a desert. We live in 
an arid region of the West, and we're all relying on this one river. 40 million people are drinking Colorado River water, and it's a resource that... More people need to be conscious of the fact that the water that they're using is coming from this river from many miles away, and that it has effects. Ian, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks very much for having me. We'll be featuring the Colorado River every week for the next six weeks. Tune in next Friday where we go up to where the river starts, high up in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. Be sure to check out our video coverage of the Colorado River crisis on latimes.com slash colorado-river-crisis. And that's it for this episode of The Times, essential news from the LA Times. Kasha Bersalina and Denise Guerra were the jefas on this episode. Mark Nieto mixed and mastered it, and Hasmin Aguilera and Hiba El Orbani edited. Series theme music composed by Mark Nieto. Our show is produced by Denise Guerra, Kasha Bersalina, and David Toledo, and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistants are Roberto Reyes and Nicolas Perez. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera, Shani Hilton, and Hibel Urbani. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back Monday with all the news in this month. Gracias. <laughs>